Hi, this is Graham Brown and welcome to the Excel Podcast. The Excel Podcast is a platform for the bigger conversations about leadership in the 2020s. Who's leading? How are they leading? And what stories do they have to share? Through the stories of leaders, we'll address the big challenges of our times from the era of AI to the Asian century to nurturing a new generation of entrepreneurs. If you're enjoying these conversations, subscribe to the podcast at xlpodcast.org. I shall be telling this with a sigh. Somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood and I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. That's the road not taken by Robert Frost. Many entrepreneurs face this challenge. Decisions. We face decisions of whether we should start a business or whether we should follow a corporate safe route in our career. Every single day when we do start a business is a decision. Do we hire? Do we get an office? Do we sell to this company? Do we change? Do we pivot? It's constant decisions. How do you make those decisions and how do you make it turn out the right way with success? Do you focus on the big picture or do you focus on the daily, the manageable metrics that you can see right in front of your face? Again, this is another decision. So I'm glad on the Excel podcast today, I'm joined by Ratchet Tayel, who really has mastered the process of decision making. He's built a business from zero to well over 10 million in sales in nine years. Not necessarily the super fast 100x route that you would expect of a startup, but it was confident and it was organic. And at the end of the day, it was a success. So how do you do that? And importantly, how do you do that in the face of expectations? Expectations being other people. It's not necessarily the hustle and the sales that make business hard, but it's sometimes aunties and uncles at weddings who say to you, oh, well, so-and-so has got a good job at a management consultancy. When are you going to, you know, give up on this phase that you're going through of being an entrepreneur? These are the decisions that we have to face, and these are the decisions that we have to make when we take the road not taken. And I feel that listening to Ratchet's story today will be inspiration as well as great advice for entrepreneurs who are both starting out on that journey, as well as figuring out what to do when you do finally sell the business. Stick around for 40 minutes of inspiration with Ratchet Tayal on the Excel podcast and the road not taken. Hey everybody, welcome to the Excel podcast. This is a story about leaders and their journey, the challenges that they faced, adversity. It never goes in a straight line, but that is the beauty of being an entrepreneur and having the war stories to share. I'm joined today by Ratchit Dayal, who joins us from Singapore, not originally from Singapore. There's a long journey there. And it's a journey that goes from India all the way out to the US and back to Singapore in a very roundabout way. But there is at the end of it, a lot of dots that we can join. Ratchet, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. It seems like there's a lot to talk about in your journey. It's a long journey. You started a business out of college. You grew the business with a good friend of yours we'll talk about in a minute. 
Um, you grew the business. It wasn't an easy journey. You grew it ahead of the curve before many people were even talking about the kind of business that you were doing. You scaled that business very successfully, but organically over a long period of time, you exited the business and here you are now. And I'm sure there's been a lot of time for reflection as well. But where I'd like to start, Ratchet, is go all the way back, not to the beginning, but the middle. Important part of this journey was your co-founder, Prantic, who was on this show as well. Great guy. And you really gelled. You met at university. I want it to take us back to the point at which you guys met, because when I hear the story, it reminds me of the Microsoft story. You've got Bill <laughs> Gates and Paul Allen. And Paul Allen is slightly the naughty one in this. <laughs> He's the, the maverick, the creative who exists in the background. <laughs> How do you tell this story? Well, I should say for the record that my version is the correct version, whatever he said uh, on your podcast. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a great business partner and a fantastic friend. And we actually met on my first day in Singapore when I moved from India to Singapore for university. Um, and I think right outside the hostel, there were there were some parents who were trying to grab little young looking kids and saying, Hey, meet my kid. Hey, you know, meet my daughter, <laughs> meet my son. And I, and I think one of those folks might've introduced us and say, Hey, you look, you know, similar aged, you're probably going to college together. Um, and, uh, we, we went to college together. We shared a lot of courses. Um, he studied computer engineering. I studied computer science. And at least in the first year we had a fair bit in common. Um, but I think we, we felt very different Prantik, you know, when I first met him for the first week, I was a little bit in awe. He had just come from his school in uh, Indonesia. And I think he was the prefect or the head boy or some mm. really grandiose uh, title. Um, and, you know, he seemed to be the favorite of the crowd. And I was a little misfit. I barely squeaked into university. And, uh, you know, as, as you would, you know, just kind of made it to the flight and, you know, made it here with a hundred bucks. Um, and so I was feeling a little out of place. And it was it was both a bit daunting and awesome to to meet classmates. Um, so we had, you know, we had a couple of uh, years in university. And to be honest, I don't think we were the best of friends. We were mm. close enough that we'd uh, visit each other on our birthdays and cut some cakes together and uh, kick some other friends on their birthdays. Um, but we also did some projects together and that sucked. I think we, mm. we drove each other crazy with our different approaches. Um, and almost a decade later, um, he was looking to quit his job and join another job. And he was getting hunted by a lot of uh, good companies, you know, the, the Googles and the LinkedIn's and so on. And I was in the identity crisis because I'd run my business for a couple mm. of years then. And I, it had hit me by then that I don't want to be alone. This is just too hard. And I was at that point trying to find friends and bring them on. Um, and that was the point where I didn't really have to convince him. He had seen the journey and he was interested over just one meal. I mostly had to convince his mom. Hmm, um, that's I, the I remember hard pitch, isn't it? Yeah, harder first than time an we, investor. <laughs> How do you pitch that to plan? somebody's mom? You've got Prantig who has all this weight of expectation. He's gone for a very traditional and you know uh, educational route. You say head boy, head prefect, a lot of pressure to get into a blue chip company and excel with a career for life. And they hear you come along. who's a little bit different and a bit of an outside as you say you squeezed into university 100 bucks in your back pocket um 
a little bit of an explorer, something about this guy that says that he doesn't, you know, he's not a straight shooter in the sense that he <laughs> is going to get a very respectable corporate job. And there you are pitching his mom. How does that work? Yeah, I mean, I, so there's two things I think that helped that. One was I had been through a similar journey myself. You know, I think in both of our families, um, we hadn't had anybody do a business before. Mm. Or if someone had tangentially been part of a business, it was usually a failure story that left a scar on the family. So even for me, it took a couple of years for my parents to, you know, kind of uh, grind their teeth and say, okay, fine, we will still love you if you, if you do this thing. But it wasn't that way when I did want to start up. So mm. it gave me a little bit of perspective to say that it takes a few years, even if we mm. don't get it right right now, if we work hard at it, parents come along, they love us um, and they'll see it. So that gave a bit of comfort to both him and me that it's not an immovable object. It is a winnable battle. Mm. Um, the second thing was he had done very well in his career. He had joined the Singapore government. Um, after that, he had joined some hot startups and he had a lot of offers. So we could always go back with, you know, it's, it could just be an experiment and he will have a job offer waiting for him if it doesn't work out even though you know, we hoped with all our hearts that it would never come to that. I think moms need to know that, mm. just to know that there's a bit of safety net. But it was, it was fascinating. It was good practice later for my marriage uh, when I, you know, I got married and my wife is from Japan. And uh, as a boyfriend, her parents loved me. I would mm. visit and they'd take me around and but. feed me amazing food. But as a, as a husband or fiance, yeah. ooh, you know this, things change. I'm, you know, I'm not salary men. You're part of the um, family now, and you're definitely not Japanese. Yeah. And I think more than that, you know, there's a concept of you are a salary man, you join a company and the company yeah. will take care of you for 30 years. Um, and so same thing, this time I had a template for the business plan and the talking points and the FAQ. And it was good prep for the, for the more important uh, convincing I had to do later on in life. There must be in all of this, Ratchet, some kind of self-belief or maybe denial i'm curious what the driver is because you either have this ability or this disposition that you aren't necessarily worried too much about what other people think so you know put that into perspective let's sort of for the audience put this into perspective you started a business out of college there's a little bit of exploration going on but when you got going zero revenues very little capital you grew that to well over 10 million in revenues and without going as far as I understand out to the VC route early on. So that is hard. And it was an agency model as well. That's an extremely hard model to make successful, especially in marketing and advertising. So let's put that on the table. You also, to some degree, distanced yourself from the expectations of becoming an engineer, accountant, doctor, as many good Indian sons would expect it to be. And then you also had these travels to the US where maybe you're exposed to these ideas. You must find yourself in these situations a lot where you are able to make decisions which sometimes go against the grain. Do you consider what enables you to do that? Because not a lot of people can do that. What's the driver in that? Yeah, I, I don't know if anybody really wakes up built differently. I think making different decisions is a muscle like anything else. So if, if you run or if you are good at a relationship or if you, you know, play an instrument very well, it didn't start off with you doing that very well. And it didn't start off with me making bold decisions. 
Um, but I think the genesis of that is like little decisions. Hmm. Hey, I don't want to wear this shirt to school, but but that's what the school uniform is. But no, I don't want to wear it. And you know, you rebel a little bit there. And uh, did you get you into trouble little, at school for? <laughs> I did get into trouble. I think I was uh, I was blessed with intelligence from my parents hmm. and you know a loving home. But I did want to when I saw something wrong with what the teachers were saying or trying to get you know another brick in the wall. I would speak up and get thrown out of class uh, occasionally, um, and I think I, I kind of enjoyed that. Um, it's a dangerous combination, though, isn't it? I mean, in a positive way, being intelligent and challenging the rules, because you then operate by a higher code, which is what is right as opposed to what is done. In a sense that you you're not afraid to say, "Well, that doesn't work. I'm going to suggest something better." As yeah. opposed to somebody who's one or the other, you know, you have very intelligent, successful people, but they don't push the boundaries. And then you have people who push the boundaries who don't have the mental acuity and therefore they kind of end up spiraling to the bottom. You've got this sort of overlap, which I imagine that you were a bit of a handful at school. <laughs> I guess, uh, you know, it's never a perfect time. So maybe intelligent I use my intelligence to rebel a little bit and highlight the misfit parts of my life. Even though mm. I suppose on a twenty-four hour basis, my life was same as everyone else for twenty hours. It's the the different few hours that I remembered and enjoyed and cherished. Um, and now I think with a little bit of success, it's that same intelligence that also questions and says, "Hey, do I want to do another business? Do I want to repeat mm. and grow something bigger?" or I don't know. I mean, look at what uh, what Elon Musk is doing, or what Bill Gates did with his money, and uh, you know, is there a totally different path waiting for me? Hmm. Um, so yeah, I don't know. If, I think intelligence is it can be used to funnel and get really deep on the T, just to develop those skills and become extraordinary. And scientists do that, and maybe writers do that, and some people know it. But I think a lot of people like me would probably be attention deficit. Hmm. And they want to use the intelligence to say, "What else can I get good at?" I feel like hmm. I've hit the ninety percent mark on this thing. It's curiosity that yeah. drives you, creativity, the the need to challenge yourself as well. With some I don't new... know if you know, maybe some listeners relate to this, but I once did a personality quiz which opened my eyes, which showed me that my biggest values were not something that attracted me towards them, but it was running away from mediocrity. Hmm. And whenever I kind of sense that, oh, this this activity, this result, this group of people are going to just have a predictable path forward, um, that's when I kind of got uh, a little fire under my butt to go do something different. And so maybe you know, I don't know if you probably relate to that, but a lot of people mm. have that little niggling feeling, and maybe they just haven't yeah. built the muscle to act on it in little ways until it gets stronger. Well, I want to know like what the genesis of becoming an entrepreneur is for you in particular, that running away from mediocrity. Some people, they have an uncle who runs a firm and, you know, they get the summer job there and they get exposed to that. That's one story. Others read a book by Elon Musk and then decide they're going to be the next Elon Musk. And then there's a group of people who just say, I'm not sure, but I don't want to do that. And it seems <laughs> that maybe you're in that category, which is that you just don't want to go down this escalator career salary man route. Where was the point at which you thought, yeah, I really want to become an entrepreneur. Was that something as a kid that you had in you or how did that develop? 
I don't think so. I mean, as a kid, I was never exposed to the idea of entrepreneurship. My dad got me this uh, book of Bill Gates when I was maybe eight or nine. Um, and I saw him as a CEO of a company, not somebody who mm. started it up, but more like a software designer. And that's what I took away from, from that moment. Um, but I think maybe in university, as I was about to graduate, um, I had the benefit of NUS and the government investing heavily in entrepreneurship programs. And being exposed to those kind of brought it together because we do all these tech case studies of Betamax versus VHS uh, in the mm. 80s, you know, um, and that was super, super fun. And I knew at that point that I want to be part of like emerging tech in some way. And accidentally, I stumbled upon this weird area of psychology and neuro linguistic programming and hypnotherapy. Um, and I realized you know, our brain is almost like a machinery and can we figure out how to engineer it? And I think my big driver was, I knew that if I went into a job, it would require committing to that. Wake up in the morning, commute there, make friends with the colleagues, get really good at that. Hmm. And I felt like I was graduating university and I wanted to get really good at me, like just understanding how my brain works and my friends and my partners and my, you know, parents and so on. And so I feel like in entrepreneurship, I would have freedom to explore me or people, mm. um, which I wouldn't have in a job. Um, I think like most people who study hard, you probably just want to get that feeling of I'm good at this. I worked hard at it and I achieved something. And I knew that whatever I choose, I have to be good at it. Um, so I think I chose entrepreneurship, not because I had a brilliant idea or money lying around or a great vision for where it would go, but I felt like in in the near term, it would allow me to explore and mm. and do that really well. It's a it's a deeper why, isn't it? That you have to be aware of and awake to see, in a sense, and explore. But I imagine that when you were going through that process, it to some people, and correct me if I'm wrong, that may seem indulgent. Like, why is Ratchet on this journey of self exploration when he should be? in a good job and look at all his peers. Now, the reason I'm saying this, because I imagine there are listeners who have the same doubts is that actually, I didn't know you can do something based on what you want to do. You know, maybe it's not the deeper why that you have, but it's something else. I want to work with animals or I want to help people or I want to create stuff. And they may think that and feel it some way indulgent, self-indulgent, when really they should be sacrificing themselves and getting on the corporate ladder. You must have had a very clear understanding at that stage that was the right thing to do. And did you face resistance when you decided to go down this pathway? I think constantly, uh, you know, you'd expect that most people in the society, people who care about me, understood that that job and corporate ladder path very well. And so unconsciously, they would constantly recommend that and, and want to find out when I'm getting back on that path or, you know, mm. can, can they just slightly change my mind and swing me back to the, to the right way. Uh, but I would say even in extreme circles, people I went to entrepreneurship courses with or internships and startups with, they came back and they used that as a launching board to join McKinsey or Bain or BCG or mm. a good bank. So, you know, I think there's a lot of pressure to swim back in that stream. Um, but Robert Frost's poem, the, hmm. the road less taken, that constantly rings in my head. And 
I, I just see things as a choice. Um, and I think there's a great question of like, why, why not work hard at that path and, and rigor through it. And I would say, you know, I don't think I had like a privileged background. Like, I mean, I knew if I totally screwed up, I could leave Singapore, move back in with my parents in India and they'd feed me for a couple of more years. They, they were young and they had jobs for a little while longer, but we wouldn't really have a great life. So I think what I did for myself is lowered my uh, threshold of living to very low expenses. So I knew that Maggie noodles plus eggs plus Kailan from the supermarket in my twenties, I'm going to be fine if I mostly eat that and I don't mm. need vacation and I don't need to go out for a drink outside. And that just took the burden off of me. If I can live off 900 bucks a month for 10 years, wow. um, I felt like I'll, I'll figure it out by then. Like, um, you know, I might lose some friends or most likely friends will be paying for me, but, um, mm. I will figure it out in a decade. Mm. Yeah. The losing friends part is interesting, isn't it? That you, it, it, it just conscious about this pressure part that you talk about people trying to make you swim back with the current and it may not be over. They may not say to you, Ratchet, there's a job going at McKinsey. You should be in the, the round for that. It may be subtle things like, ah, oh, you know, so-and-so has got a job at this company and he's doing really well. And yep. you just kind of absorb it and you're like, mm -hmm, okay, <laughs> what are you trying to say? And just let that go on. But then here you are eating Maggie noodles and they are all, you know, out there spending their bonuses. Did you know inside you, yeah. that was the, did you have doubts then? Cause uh, you know, eating Maggie noodles, 900 bucks a month in Singapore of all places, you know, that's <laughs> hard. <laughs> did you have any yeah. dark moments uh, when you thought actually maybe they were right? I, I, I did think that a part of the journey for most entrepreneurs, um, they will carry that chip. And then, so I did constantly have doubts, but I talked about the muscle of being able to make slightly different decisions and stick to them. Like even when I had the self doubt, instead of turning me into, Hey, I should, I should actually listen to them. It, it made me even stronger and resolved to say, mm. I got to prove the world wrong. You just got to live it out and fight it out. And eventually, you know, I'll, I'll break even. Um, and I, I, I w that wouldn't have come unless I had a decade of little decisions that I could make and live with the consequences. Mm. You were doubling down on it. Yeah. It worked out. I, you know, it, well, it worked out. Have. No, exactly. Well, this is the great part of the story. It is a massive risk that you took, even though it wasn't massive in each individual decision. There were lots of small decisions that scaled up and you doubled down and you dug in, you committed to this identity in this course, which, you know, in a way you could have exploded in a, a ball of fire and been shot down. And <laughs> that was it, a complete disaster, but you made it work. And I'm really fascinated by how you made it work. I've heard Prantik talk about obviously growing the business and you grew it from virtually nothing. And you started out in this shop house, this small, office, you know, you didn't have many favors. You didn't because of your background as well. You didn't start with a whole bunch of contacts. You couldn't go back into these brands and resell yourself as a consultant. So really from scratch, and you didn't have a lot of people around you as well. I mean, obviously from university, but from your family who could say, you know, okay, we're going to seed fund this with, get you started up and running, um, and make sure you've got burn 
rate of two years plus. You didn't have those kind of luxuries. <laughs> so how did you make this work? When you look back on your journey, 12 years, I think, from zero to... Um, yeah, zero to 10 million in maybe about nine years. And now it's nine been years. about 16, 16 years total, yeah. 16 years. Okay, so I'm carrying the part with Prantic here as well. And then there was a few years before yeah. that and after yeah. as well. So 16 years and zero to 10 million in nine how because i want to listen to this as an entrepreneur thinking what are the key takeaways i know i'm asking for a silver bullet which is a bit unfair <laughs> but on reflection what do you think really made it work based on your sort of like pre-entrepreneurial journey as well i i mean i only have my experiences to draw on and they are i loved my time in university mainly because Every year I could see myself becoming a different person, twice, thrice of what I was the year before. And it's mainly because of exposure and what I learned. So by the time I started up, those couple of years had built the confidence that if I kept learning and I kept growing, I'll figure out a way. So, mm. you know, I think people use the word hope um, in, but in business, I think it's more than hope. It's confidence that as long as you can flow with the waves and you can pivot and you can change, there will be a way forward. And it's, it's, it's never the way that you initially thought. So I think for me, I'll, I'll tell you two parts. One is the part before Prantik um, and one is the part after Prantik. What, what mm. working with Prantik taught me is that you're either growing massively or you're shrinking a little bit. There is no static. And so we have to hustle and pivot every couple of years. And so what he brought to the table our original business model, throw it out the door. I'm going to get one new client and that's, that's going to cover the entire company revenues, but it'll be totally different than what our company was. Mm. And then let's do it again in two years and let's do it again in two years. And so once we got a little bit stable, that's the attitude that, that got us that growth. Before that point, I think it was mostly about proving to me and my future business partners and employees that you can survive here and you can do a little bit better than Maggie me. So, you know, mm. I might have had to do Maggie for five years, but you can have a house <laughs> and support a family. We can do that if we just pull long hours and, uh, mm. you know, find weird ways to rest. So I think two phases to it, survival mm. and then pivot, hustle and growth. But mm. I, I don't think I would have had the energy to hustle and pivot and growth or my partners would, unless I was able to provide that stability mm. and that context of we'll make it guys, we'll make it. We just need to get to work and enjoy our day tomorrow. And then eventually someday we will. So the first period really was about how do we obviously validate the model? How do we get people to open their wallets and pay for this? Because if they can't do that part, you, you don't have a business. And then it was, how do we sustainably do this? How do we ensure that we've got enough payroll every month to feed everybody? And then, you yeah. know, how do we keep this going? And really it seems like you were building the base stage one, which is, okay, how do we just build this um, financially solvent business that's profitable? Uh, it's maybe not 10 xing but it's stable and it will keep us going. And then obviously yeah. Prantic came along and really helped you scale that from there on. It's a very organic way to do things. And I wonder if that sort of goes back to your, you seem to have a very long-term view of yeah. success. And that may be denying pressures as well. People say, why aren't you doubling your revenues every year? 
you know, that kind of pressure must have been, okay, fine. I'm just going to do it my way. Did you have those conversations? Yeah, constantly. And I'm thankful for them. Um, fortunately, those family, friends, well-wishers weren't overbearing. Mm. They would just want to have a once every six months lunch with me and kind of sketch out on a napkin what the business plan looks like and get me to reflect. And that's good because my ego was getting in the way of some some self-reflection. So I am, I'm thankful for that. But we did have those conversations um, and I, the, the key thing is I only needed that lunch. Like if I had to hear that, hear that person, if I had to hear my dad do that every week, I would have rebelled. Yeah. But uh, over a f- you know, family dinner, that makes sense. Um, so yeah, I think that there is that, that pressure to constantly grow. Um, but I do have a long-term view. Like you asked the question, why, how do we validate if someone will pay for a service? In the long-term view, first of all, I don't have a service. I have a version one of something. Hmm. A version one of any product is nothing. It's the worst version there ever will be. And I, I kind of knew that from every project I had built, I realized that when I started and then three weeks later, when I am on to version nine, it is such a different product. So hmm. in terms of what people will pay for, I think I just had a little bit of faith that I know people will not pay for what I have right now. But as long as I listen to feedback and try something new and you know, another version of this will work with some audience. And, I, and that, at that point, that has a limited shelf life, at least in Singapore, where our business was primarily based. We have only, you know, four and a half million people at that point in time. Hmm. Um, that's not a very big pool that those folks will get bored of my service in two years. So I need to invent something new to sell to that. So, yeah, I think rather than have a financial goal of I'm going to make so much money or grow hmm. to so much revenue, um, I learned this concept of result oriented goals are great for motivation and to get started. But then process oriented goals are what could bring joy every day. And so what for is me, a process oriented goal? So process-oriented goal, uh, there's a great book um, I saw last year called Atomic Habits, mm. which is essentially take that big goal and break it into what do we need to do on a daily, monthly, weekly basis. And I realized they were doing that in the world of sales when I read some sales books that mm. you want to break down that annual target into how many calls you might make today. Now, I don't want to make calls, but the equivalent for me was how many people do I want coming to my website and leaving an inquiry mm. or how many referrals in a week can I count on, on people, you know, messaging me a friend's number. So process oriented goals are things that you can do on a daily or a weekly Mm. basis. And if you're done, you can be joyful about it. Like Mm. I did it. I came to office, I lifted the shutter, Uh, you know, funny story. My, my first business partner before Prantik, um, he was an early bird and he would get to office before me, but we had a shop house with an actual shutter and I was the taller one. And so the poor guy would like work out of a coffee shop because he needed me to come and lift the, <laughs> the door all the way up. That was your job role <laughs> yeah, 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 in the JD. Um, and I felt useful. And late, you know, in later years, my grandma used to make fun of me. I, you know, I think she really meant it, but she said, did you open your shop today? Oh. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that's your process oriented goal. Yeah, did you open so sh- shop today? showing up and yeah. the routine of turning things on and, you know, typing something in notepad. Mm gets the ball rolling into something bigger, the snowball grows. Absolutely. It's important, isn't it, that you have those daily goals, if you like, that you can control and impact. When you look, for example, at the, the revenue goals, not a lot can be impacted in the short term, especially sales, for example. You can't control whether a client's going to say yes or no, or whether they're going to pay now or in 90 days. There's little you can control. But what you can do is sh- show up. 
And I think that's really important advice for entrepreneurs. You've got to be able to break this down. Atomic Habits is a good recommendation for listeners. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if, uh, you know, in university or maybe before that, I came across this article about a concept called Kaizen. I don't mm. know if it's hot anymore, but it was a, a Toyota principle. Yeah, that's right. Um, it was trying to explain why Toyota company in Japan could be so dominant in a large market like the US. And it was all about they started off from the same place as every other car manufacturer. And then they broke it down into all the cogs of the wheel and improved each cog of the wheel a little bit. Mm. And then kept doing that the next year and the next year and the next year. And once you compound interest that up, they are just so much better than everyone else um, with the power of compounding. So I think mm. I knew for me, like, you know, uh, sales is one part of the business. Um, solutions is another, delivery is another, client management is another, managing the money is another. And rather than become amazing at one thing, if I could just use my attention deficit nature to get slightly better at each one of those things, mm. the compound of that would be incredibly powerful. Um, and mm. it was a guess. I mean, I don't think I read a book or anything, but in my head, I just knew, okay, if I compound interest, break that math up. Um, so it was a weird idea, but I believed in it long enough for me to find the right books and articles to validate it. So mm. I think, you know, for whoever's listening, if you've got a weird idea, congrats just just hold yeah. on to it there's there's somebody who's done a, a framework yeah, yeah absolutely i think that works um in situations where you don't have a clear defined end goal in which is a luxury in many sense like you know i'm gonna leave university and design aircraft and become you know the world's leading aircraft design boutique for example just random but that's a very clear goal and therefore there's a pathway you can model maybe other design boutiques or you can intern somewhere but where you have this situation where you just are setting out on this pathway where there isn't a defined ending but it's just a journey then that kaizen approach maybe is the best one because it's i don't know where exactly i'm going to end up but i just know i'm moving forward and therefore if you're always focused on the end goal and you don't have this clear picture, it can be very demotivating. And your approach is step by step. Am I showing up? Am I improving on the baseline numbers? Am I improving on, you know, inbounds, contacts, for example, all of that. And that's really good advice because I feel a lot of entrepreneurs, they, they look at the big picture stuff, which is good. It's inspirational. Yeah. Bill Gates, he built one of the most successful companies of our time, but he never set out to do that. He set out to code and that is still probably to his day what he enjoys doing. So that's really important to remember, I think, for entrepreneurs is that step by step Kaizen. What well, such a lovely word as well. Constant evolution. Yeah. So I'm glad and you all the, that in. all the hard goals that I, I see fellow entrepreneurs struggle with. Hey, I got to make $400,000 because that's mm. my payroll and I got to make it. Or, uh, you know, I promise my investors a certain number uh, of revenue. The reality is all those hard goals are also arbitrary. Hmm. When I when I look back, it was a 10 minute conversation between an investor and an entrepreneur that picked that number. That payroll is 400K because you're set in your way that you need these seven people on, yeah. on the team. So in reality, you, you definitely do not know where you will go. And I think Kaizen is maybe the only way and, and uh, the lagging goal of revenue or headcount or valuation is always a, a toss of a coin. Hmm. Yeah, it's quite a powerful thought, really. 
so much of what we do absorb as goals are arbitrary. You know, I have to make two million, five million. Why? Well, for the reasons the tail wags the dog, as they say. I think it's important now to think about what you want to do and therefore build around that. That takes a different kind of attitude as well. And putting the Kaizen as the framework for that to give you the confidence to keep doing that on a daily basis. But now you have this energy that has been a blessing and to some case a curse, I suppose, for the entrepreneur. It's also double-sided um, arrow of the narrative that has driven you for so many years and you've successfully sold the business. You're in an earnout period now and you must be thinking about what happens next. You're a young guy. How old are you, Ratchet, can I ask? I am 37 today. Uh, I mean, not today, to see, yeah. 37. Still, I mean, you're, you're a third of the way through in theory. Let's put it that way. You, you've got so much ahead of you. What do you do? What are your sort of longer term plans when you think about, because you, you have choice, you have skill, you've got access. I'm sure now you've got contacts that you never had. Like 16 years ago, you would have <laughs> bitten somebody's arm off for these contacts that you know now in the investment community and in finance and access. Does that now make things easier for you to make a decision? What are you thinking about next? It's very interesting. I think my immediate impetus, it was very hard to sell the business because I didn't actually want to sell the business. My partners did. And so, you know, I mostly told myself, okay, let's see where this game goes. How much money will someone offer us and will it be a good fit? But in my head, I'd started the business to essentially be a McKinsey or an Ogilvy to leave my name on the door when I die mm. and, and run it all my life. So selling the business was, I, you know, I don't want to use the word traumatic lightly, but it was a shock to the system. I can imagine. And my wife would later point out to me that, you know, we'd go on vacation after I sold the business and I'd be extremely snappy in the months mm. after. Um, and so it took a long time for me to just, you know, I still had the job as CEO. I was still meeting the same people, but emotionally something had snapped at the point of the sale. Hmm. Um, and so my initial gut was, I'm going to keep doing this and I could be part of the acquiring group. Uh, but then a little something was cut. And then I told myself, okay, you know, it takes sacrifices to run and grow a business. In my case, I never really learned how to cook apart from Maggie and fruits. Um, in my relationship, I, you know, I never really learned how to pick a restaurant and take my wife out. Or I had a kid just about the time I sold the business and I thought, you know, maybe I want to be stay home dad. And I tried all of that. I kind of tried handing the business over to my partners and, and stay at home. Uh, and I tried staying home with my wife, uh, particularly during COVID. I don't think anyone else was built for this. Uh, but, mm. And I realized that I, I cannot be retired. Um, so at least I got to try that path at 35 and realized that you know, I can't take it. My wife, my parents, my kid, none of us can take it if I'm not productive. And that's a mm. negative spiral, not a positive one. Um, so that, that brought me back a little bit to the edge of things. And so today I took on a, you know, I took on a new job earlier this year as, as CMO of the group that acquired us, Merkel. Um, and that's been fun. And, uh, you know, I don't know where we'll end up, but I am enjoying myself. Mm. with new challenges and new ways to learn. You know, we're, we're speaking on a podcast and, you know, I'm working on some YouTube series and I've got some studio here. Um, so both as part of my job and offline, you know, for entrepreneurship and psychology and the things I like, 
I'm producing content. Um, so I don't know where it goes in the long term. I know it'll be somewhere weird and hopefully mm. somewhere no one else has been before. Uh, but I, I don't want to set myself goals because it feels like disappointment every day I'm not there. But with process-oriented goals, I showed up today and I spoke to you. It's a lovely day. It's, 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 a, it's an awesome day and I, I want to keep doing that tomorrow and the day after. Yeah, that's inspiring. I love the bit where you say, I don't know where I'm going. But that's where you started out with that attitude, that mindset. You didn't have a plan and you're still in the same situation. You're still the same person, a bit older and wiser. And, but you're now still on this path. And I think that's really important, isn't it? That for entrepreneurs often feel that an exit means the end. And therefore, oh, Ratchet, now you can go and play golf. Now you can, you know, just sail off into the sunset, you know, cycle on your bike every day. And, but you've realized actually that's not what it's about. I mean, those may be bonuses, but really what deep down drives you and probably many entrepreneurs, and they only really discover this when they go through the process, is actually the journey you've been through as an entrepreneur is not to build a business and sell it. That was part of the journey, not the journey's destination itself. The journey was that constant improvement. And the selling of the business is really just giving you access to resources and taking it to a, another level, as opposed to being like end of game. Now you've proven yourself, put your feet up and enjoy the rest. But it seems to me what you really enjoy is that constant mental challenge, curiosity, creating, and you thrive on that. And that's really yeah. important because, you know, if you take all of that away and replace it with golf, I don't know if you play golf, but I imagine if you don't, then it's not going to be what you call, it's going to be hell <laughs> rather than heaven. Your, your idea is like, you know, just constantly being in situations where I feel I can grow. And I think entrepreneurs need to know that because they, they see that exit as kind of like the goal, but you're saying to them, look, this is what I enjoy. If I had the choice, I'd be doing this. And I guess now you have the choice, right? Yeah. I guess, you know, I, I started by trying to get to some sort of financial stability and it's a very important goal. And I could manage that with low expenses and low income and then moderate expenses and moderate income and good income and good expenses. And that, that's a steady path that, that grows. Um, so everybody starts with that. But what really drove me through most of my journey was my commitment to the people around me, my business partners, the employees, the folks I hired right out of college. And, you know, they had breakups and partners and got married and had kids while they were with us. Uh, my clients who went through the same situation. And so I think my goal with Happy Marketer after my first three or four years was I need to make other people rich and I'm going to be fine. Mm. Um, because then we'll, we'll harness the, the joint energy. And so with the exit, it was really important to me that we had better offers on the table. We had people who offered us significantly more money for the acquisition, but this felt like a place where my team would get good money when they sold and they would make good money in the years after, and they would feel like a fit and misfit. You know, there's a little bit of that that you want mm. going on. Um, so I think that'll continue to drive me. Um, I want to learn, grow and be eager, but I won't be motivated by a financial number. I will be motivated by people. And so as we meet more people and something I do can help them, um, that drives me. So that's why I think I'm doing more speaking and teaching and mentoring and 
you know, uh, content production, because I feel like I can affect a lot of people hmm. um, in concentric circles. Uh, and that's, that's what it is right now. I'm sure I will probably start up something full-time or part-time, you know, you said two-thirds of the life to go. So that, that will inevitably happen, but I think it'll probably be driven because there are some people I care about and they're super passionate, just like I am, and it'll be fun to do together rather mm. than some sort of an endpoint. Yeah, what a wonderful journey. I want to summarize, give it to you, Ratchet, the road less taken. You mentioned Robert Frost and it's such a wonderful piece of writing as well. What is the road less taken? And some of the listeners may have read it, may be aware of it, but to you, how would you, I don't want to say it's your epitaph to go on the gravestone, but if you were to summarize the first three chapters in your life, you know, if we, what we talked about today, how would you use this as some kind of advice and maybe inspiration for entrepreneurs out there who might feel that they haven't got access to the stories that like you have created that will you know help them understand that this is the way forward the road less taken what does it mean i think i see life as a series of branching trees of decision points so today I could be speaking to you with a smile or I could be speaking to you with a grumpy face. And that's a, that's a little decision, uh, which most people are, are trained to do that with a smile. Um, but when it comes time later at the end of the day to finish that last PowerPoint for a boss who may not appreciate it, or to maybe get on a forum and chat with some people who are passionate about something cool in health or public services or tech or whatever you're passionate about, you can make that choice to spend an hour there instead of an hour, which just gets you deeper in that path. And so for me, it's always about building that muscle of recognizing what exactly is a decision and what is just a flow of events. And in my case, whether it was choosing where to study and what I got exposed to, or choosing who I work with in terms of business partners, or choosing my life partner and how she support and challenges me in the right places. All of those were decision points, which I didn't know were decisions, but I slowly could train myself to say, okay, I can choose to marry someone from a different country uh, who maybe doesn't do what I do. Um, I can choose to bring on someone who doesn't think the way I do, and maybe I'm a thinker and he's a doer. Um, or I could choose to go to this country that no one in my circle seems to know about, but it seems cool and the photos look nice. And so that, that could be interesting. Um, so you've got a little hint of an idea, hopefully, when you're listening. Um, it is an actual decision point. And if you take the small ones, then you get really good at making the big ones in the right way. Great advice. That's it, Dale, everybody. I'm sure people who listen would probably want to contact you or reach out to you or find out more about you at least. Where's the best starting point? Uh, the best place would probably be LinkedIn. Uh, mm -hmm. If you can spell my name, Rachit Dayal. LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, I'm, I'm there. And hopefully in mid-October, you should see me on YouTube. And yeah. uh, when you do, like, share, subscribe when you see that video. Yeah, the future Casey Neistat. So <laughs> check him out. Ratchet, wonderful conversation today. I really appreciate you sharing with us today. It's inspiring for me and also hopefully for the listeners out there. And if you do feel moved by Ratchet's story, then feel free to check out his work and also reach out to him. Ratchet, thank you very much. Thank you, Graham. 
You've been listening to the XL Podcast with me, Graham Brown. To subscribe and discover more conversations, go to www.xlpodcast.org.